Hello, I'm Charles Wright, and welcome to the Complete in Christ podcast, where we endeavor to fit the pieces of our lives together according to the Word of God. We're continuing our study of the book of Colossians, asking the question, is Christ enough? The Colossian believers wanted more. Simply knowing Christ wasn't enough for them. They also wanted to know and experience so-called deeper spiritual truths and power. They believed in Christ and the gospel, but still found themselves looking for more. They were caught in a crosswind of cultures and influences and had started to doubt whether Christ was truly enough to handle all the concerns of their lives. We just wrapped up chapter one, where Paul lays out in great detail the effect the gospel has had and is having in the lives of the Colossian believers. He says that the gospel has produced fruit in their lives in an ever increasing manner and has birthed a hope in them that is rooted in the good news about Jesus the Christ. He goes on to basically list out the resume and the credentials of Jesus, reminding them that he is the image of God in whom the fullness of God dwelled, that he is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the resurrected from the dead, that everything that was, is, or will be was made by him, through him, and for him. And in his work on the cross, reconciliation is found not only for sinful man, but also for all of creation. We now turn our attention to chapter two, where Paul wants to help the Colossians to understand that as believers, their lives must be lived in and with Christ. So let's get to it. In verse one of chapter two, Paul really is finishing his thought from the previous chapter as he explains to the Colossians the lengths and the depths of his labor on their behalf. And he's doing this for a couple of reasons that he lays out in verse two. First, he says, look, I'm, I'm laboring on your behalf. I'm struggling on your behalf in order that your hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. He also says that he's doing it so that they may attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding um, that results in a true knowledge of God's mystery of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse three, that in Christ are hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, Paul is hitting at the core of what's happening for these Colossians as they are being tempted to borrow from other religions and philosophies and practices and add that to their belief in Christ. Paul says, look, I'm working and laboring to instruct you, to teach you well, so that as life ebbs and flows, as life comes against you, as you have mountaintop experiences and valley uh, experiences as well, your hearts won't be discouraged. And you will have an anchoring point. You'll have a strong foundation and assurance of what is yours in Christ. But you'll only have this anchoring. You'll only have this assurance. You'll only be able to establish this firm foundation if you have a true knowledge of Christ. And in him are found treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you would just lean into him, you could access these treasures. Paul goes on then in verse four. Uh, and, and I think what we see in his statement in verse four is what has happened to the Colossians. As Paul explains that he is laboring, that he is teaching, that he is writing to them so that they won't be deluded by a persuasive argument. In other words, Paul is trying to guard the Colossians against being carried off by some folks outside of the faith whose words may sound good and may even make a lot of sense to the Colossians minds, but ultimately would lead them away from Christ. And as I reflect on verse four here in chapter two, 
And Paul's words, I can't help but be reminded of Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent. And if you just think back, right, they were presented a persuasive argument. Uh, and, and if we learn anything from the lesson in the garden is that there is no correlation, right, between an argument being persuasive and it being truthful. Uh, and Paul knows that when we are at points of uncertainty or moments of lacking something in our lives, when we feel like uh, something is missing or we feel like we're not able to accomplish something, or maybe even we are afraid or doubt is moving in, it's, it's those moments that we become vulnerable to persuasive arguments, arguments that pluck at the strings of our fears, arguments that uh, pluck at the strings of our desires, right? Our hopes, our goals, our aims. And it is in these moments that we are most likely to be deluded by an argument based and rooted in something outside of the wisdom and knowledge that is found in Christ. And this is exactly where this Colossian church finds itself at the point that Paul writes this letter. Moving on to verse six, Paul starts off with a Therefore, and of course, right, if you've been uh, reading your Bible for a long time, been studying your Bible for a long time, we know that when we see a therefore, we have to take time to understand what the therefore is there for. So right before verse six, right, we just talked about this. Paul expresses to the Colossians that because I care for you and want to see your good discipline and stability in your faith in Christ, I'm now going to lay out some instructions for you so that you can do that. And so verse six begins those instructions. And so he, he goes on to tell them first, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Now, I, I know at first, right, that may not sound like a lot. It almost sounds like some advice you might get just from a simple fortune cookie, kind of lofty and fluffy without a whole lot of meat there, maybe not even a whole lot of substance. But let's take a little time just to walk through what it is Paul is saying here. First, it's clear that Paul is linking how the Colossians received Christ with how they should also walk in Christ. There is some kind of cause and effect relationship that Paul is implying exists. While we understand what it means to receive something, we have to ask ourselves in this context, what does Paul mean when he uses the word received? Now, it is a technical term, right, that carries with it the idea of acquiring something based on a tradition or based on a reputation or based on an account. In other words, Paul is indicating that the Colossians received the person of Christ by means of the authoritative teaching about Christ. If we push this a little bit further, uh, what they would have received by way of this teaching is that Jesus is the high priest. He's the only one qualified to stand in the gap between God and man and become the sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the world. They would have also received that Jesus is the prophet, declaring God's will and illuminating the scriptures, literally God, the son speaking in unity with God, the father. And lastly, they would have received that Jesus is the king, sovereign over all, given all power and authority by God, the father to rule over all creation. Okay, so so we've got some insight into what Paul means when he uses the word receive. Now, let's turn our attention to walk. And this term is pretty straightforward, right? Because when Paul says walk, he just means how 
Uh, the Colossians live their lives day in and day out from sun up to sundown and everything in between. Now, remember, I said that Paul indicates that there is some kind of cause and effect relationship between receiving Christ and walking in Christ. So if we take that premise and apply what we just kind of went through regarding receiving and walking, I I think we can say it uh, more succinctly that Paul says, look, in the same way or according to the same criteria, the same conditions by which you first received Christ, namely that he is the prophet, that he is the priest, that he is the king, you should also then live your lives day in and day out from sunup to sundown, like he is, in fact, the prophet, the priest and the king. And in context, Paul is admonishing and encouraging the Colossians to not let the pressures, to not let the struggles, the conflicts, the confusion, the doubts, the uncertainty of their environment, which, again, is in a mix of different cultures and ideas, make them live in a way that conflicts with who they say Christ is. Simply put, Paul is telling them that their walk should match their talk. And I think the text kind of begs a question of us. If Jesus is the prophet, then why don't we listen to him? If Jesus is the priest, why won't we confess our sins before him? If Jesus is the king, why won't we submit our lives to him? Moving on to verse seven, um, Paul um, says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. After reminding them of who Christ is and what that should mean for how they live their lives, Paul goes on in verse seven to help the Colossians remember what Christ has done for them. And he points out three critical things. First, he says that they have been firmly rooted. While I don't want to get too much into the weeds, it is important to point out that in the original Greek, the verb used here is a perfect middle participle. And I bring that up only to point out that this verb form means that the act of them being rooted is something that happened to them in the past. They didn't root themselves, but they were rooted. Right. And this rooting now has ongoing effects throughout their lives moving forward which naturally leads us to ask, what are those ongoing effects? Well, that leads to the second thing that Paul wants them to remember that Christ has done for them. And that is that they are now being built up, but built up into what? Well, in Ephesians 4 and 13, Paul tells us that the church is being built up into the full stature of Christ. In other words, we're being made to look like Christ not just on an individual level, but as a whole church community. And this rooting and this building up in Christ is working to establish them or confirm them in their faith. So Paul says to the Colossians and to us today that when the pressures, the struggles, the conflicts, the confusion, the doubts, the uncertainty of your current circumstance, your cultural environment threatens you, when it makes you question who you are and what you believe, what's right and what's wrong. Remember that when you received Christ, you were rooted by him, in him. And even though this rooting took place in the past, its effects have been working up until this day, building you, shaping you, molding you into the stature, the very image of Christ. And as you see this process occurring, these changes happening to you, 
your faith is established, your faith is confirmed that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and that he is doing in you what he said he would do. And then he says at the end of verse eight, when we remember this, that we have been rooted in Christ and now are being built up to look like Christ and as a result have our faith in Christ confirmed, the natural response is that we will be overflowing with gratitude. We'll be extremely grateful, abounding in thanksgiving that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, not only forgave us of our sins, but he is using the ups and the downs of this life, the ins and the outs, the mountaintops and the valleys to make us look like Jesus. Think about that. We who were once far off have now been brought near. We who were once lost have now been found. We who were blind have now been given sight. We who were once headed to hell have a place prepared for us in heaven. We who had earned death because of our sins are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We who were once enemies of God can now call him Abba, Father. And this brings me to another question that I think the text begs us to ask is that we have to understand that we will look like what we are rooted in. So the question is, how are we looking? Do we look more like Jesus or do we look more like the world? Moving on to verse eight, Paul, having led some serious groundwork, right? In verses six and seven now gives the Colossians a warning in verse eight that is wrapped in an imperative or a command. The imperative is this, is in the see to it. In other words, Paul is commanding the Colossians to be watchful, to be alert, to stay on their toes, to be vigilant. Most of us think of ourselves, or at least like to think of ourselves as independent thinkers, uh, that we pretty much arrive at what we like and don't like, what we think is cool, isn't cool, uh, what we believe or don't believe kind of on our own. But you do know, right, that every interaction we have involves some kind of an attempt by one party to influence what the other party thinks or believes. Just think about it. Movies. You can be watching a movie that has nothing to do with any kind of uh, drink or food or brand placement, but then there's a Pepsi can or there's something there that's right in the front of the uh, scene that is a well-noted brand of something. Television, right? Commercials. The whole aim of a commercial is to get you to go somewhere, buy something, eat something, choose something, select something. And then, of course, social media. There are actually YouTube influencers. Um, and by way of shared posts and tweets and videos, all of it trying to literally influence what we think uh, and, and what we ultimately decide to do. But it didn't even have to be that big scale even just in our one-on-one interactions. When we interact with each other, if I ask you kind of how was your day uh, and you tell me that it was uh, not so good, then you will proceed to explain to me what happened in your day so that I arrive at the same conclusion and, and agree with you that, yeah, you did have a bad day. So influencing is all around us. No one's mind is free from influence. As a matter of fact, Even to a certain degree within this podcast and going through this Bible study, I'm trying to influence you right now. Uh, So the issue isn't that influencing or trying to influence someone in and of itself is wrong. But the issue is in that 
what we are being influenced towards. If it's to get a, you know, a certain uh, a food item from a restaurant, from a Burger King instead of a McDonald's or whatever the case may be, that's not such a big deal, right? But if it's for me to go against what God has clearly stated in his word, now you've got a problem. The warning is that there are active forces trying to take you and me captive, trying to put us in bondage, trying to take away our freedom in Christ. And Paul says that these forces come in two forms. They come in the form of philosophy and in the form of empty deceit. Now, philosophy is one of those words whose meaning is derived from the roots of two Greek words, right? Uh, Philos meaning love and Sophia meaning wisdom. So philosophy is literally the love of wisdom. And Paul pairs philosophy or the love of wisdom with empty deceit. And to the ears of our kind of postmodern world, this seems probably a bit harsh. Why would Paul equate philosophy? and empty deceit. I mean, what's wrong, after all, with loving wisdom? After all, right, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. But if we keep reading, if we keep pushing at it, what we see is that this love of wisdom isn't a love of wisdom according to God, but Paul says it's according to human tradition and according to elemental spirits of this world. So this love of wisdom is a love of human wisdom, a wisdom that is based in human understanding, human intellect and reasoning. But it is also based in something else. Now, the Colossians would have understood completely um, because they were living in this reality. But as we read it today, to be honest, it's not clear to us exactly what Paul means by elemental spirits or teachings, as some translations may read uh, of this world. Some scholars think that he is referencing a belief in earthly spirits that uh, needed to be feared and appeased. Other scholars suggest that it may be pointing to the fact that the Colossians failure to grow in their faith has led to a tendency to be caught up in elemental, elementary or simple things. Uh, but I actually don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure it out, because at the end of the day, Paul tells us that. These things, whatever they are, are not according to Christ, meaning that when we look at these philosophies and these empty deceptions and, and consider what they are promoting and what they are saying and what they are advocating for, you cannot draw a straight line back to Christ or at least not to the Christ of the Bible. So in other words, Paul tells the Colossians, look, you all better stay alert. You better be on your guard to make sure that you don't get caught up in worldviews and ways of thinking that are based in man's intellect and understanding of the world. Instead, you need to make sure that your worldview, your way of processing what's happening around you is based in Christ. The prevailing worldview or philosophy is a rejection of absolute truth, meaning that there are things that uh, are true for everyone, everywhere, and every time. And uh, what we have instead is kind of an elevation of relative truth, meaning that what's true for you may not be true for me, but your truth is just as valid as my truth. And when it comes to kind of the truthiness of truth, all truth claims are equally weighted. But Paul is asserting here, and all of Scripture asserts that only an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God can declare absolute truth. And at the end of the day, we will be influenced by something or someone. 
we will adopt a worldview. Jesus says, why not be influenced by me and adopt my worldview? Matthew 11 and 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And again, I think there is a question that this section of text begs of us, and it is simply, whose yoke are you wearing? Who is controlling how you show up, how you act, what you think is funny, what you think is cool, what you think is right, what you think is wrong? Whose worldview have you adopted? Now, uh, these next couple of verses, if you have your Bible, it would be really neat to just kind of highlight everywhere you see in him and with him statements uh, that Paul makes uh, as we kind of move through the next couple of verses, because Uh, that phrase is featured prominently. So moving into verse nine, um, Paul says that the whole fullness of deity dwells in him, in Christ. And here he is reiterating what he has said earlier in Colossians 119, when he said that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. Again, this is a reminder of exactly who Jesus is. Keep in mind, right? that Paul has warned the Colossians not to follow human philosophy and empty deceit. That would have them believe that Jesus is just a good teacher or just a good man, just a positive example, but he is the actual embodiment of God. Everything that God is, Jesus is and can be seen in him. Paul then uses this reminder, the reminder of the deity of Christ, to then delineate three results of or outcomes in verse 10 that are a direct consequence of Christ's deity. First, Paul says that because Christ is God, then you Colossians have been filled in him. In other words, for the believer, we are made full or we are made complete in Christ. Christ meets all of our spiritual needs. Christ is the means by which we are made whole. And then secondly, Paul says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Again, Paul kind of reaches back to earlier in the letter, Colossians 1 and 16, when he says that all things, whether on earth or in heaven, visible or invisible thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities were created by him, through him and for him. And is a clear statement that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, no situation, no circumstance, no bondage, no addiction, no mindset, no habit, no desire, nothing that Christ isn't supreme over. And then thirdly, Paul says that we have been circumcised by a circumcision, not performed by hands that resulted in the putting off of our body of flesh. He is now drawing on the long held tradition of circumcision amongst the Jews as an indication of their covenant relationship with God. A process performed on infant males to remove flesh And he says that because of Christ, we no longer need a physical circumcision because we've experienced a spiritual circumcision that has removed the death and sin that reigned in our flesh. And we can't miss Paul's flow of thought here because he just got through talking about not being caught up in human philosophy and empty deceit that's not aligned with Jesus. And this is why, right, because for all of the warm and fuzzies that human philosophy and worldviews can bring us, they can't make us whole spiritually and they can't free us from the bondage of sin because they are fundamentally disconnected from Jesus the Christ. Paul goes on to say that what happened to Christ physically also happened to you spiritually. 
because you've been joined to him through baptism. Now, a little bit of historical context, baptism as performed by the Jews was a transfer of identity. It was a rite that non-Jews went through when they came to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And once baptized, they were considered a part of Israel because Israelite identification was rooted in having gone through the Exodus, having passed through the waters of the parted Red Sea. All descendants of those who went through the Exodus were grandfathered in, so to speak. So when a non-Israelite was baptized, it was as if they were passing through the Red Sea of the Exodus. This is why what John the Baptist was doing in the wilderness was such a big deal when he was telling the descendants of the Exodus that they weren't really Israel. And why when Jesus shows up, he's like, hey, I can't baptize you. You are the true Israel. If anything, you should be baptizing me. So with that context, Paul reminds the Colossians that when they accepted Christ, they were joined to him baptized into him, if you will. And because of that spiritual joining, that fidelity, that union with Christ, they were buried with him and were raised to new life in him by the power of God. Another thing that human philosophy and empty deception um, cannot achieve, right? This, this, this being uh, uh, raised to new life cannot happen just by means of persuasive arguments and kind of thinking your way to more positive ways of living and thinking in your life. But a true change has to happen. There has to be a death of the old and a, and a raising of the new life in Christ. In verse 14, Paul puts an exclamation point on everything that he said so far by highlighting that on the cross, Christ canceled the record of debt. Not just canceled our debt, but Christ has canceled the record of our debt, the proof that we even had a debt. Paul then circles back again to a point that he keeps hitting on, the supremacy that is found in Christ. When he explains that God the Father disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that he took away their weapons, their ability to wage war, to subdue and to capture and then embarrass them by defeating them in Christ. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Complete in Christ podcast. Again, my name is Charles Wright, and until next time, be blessed.